Welcome to Weird Studies, an arts and philosophy podcast with hosts Phil Ford and J.F. Martell. For more episodes or to support the podcast, go to weirdstudies.com. Welcome to Weird Studies. This is Phil. This week, we're each picking a short story and discussing our picks together, in much the same way as we did with our song picks in episodes 79 and 80. Only this time, we are joined by Meredith Michael, who you may know as our production assistant, or attendant to the mysteries, as she is known on the Weird Studies Discord. I know Meredith as a doctoral candidate in musicology who works with me at the Indiana University Jacob School of Music. Meredith is a brilliant young scholar who is writing a PhD dissertation that develops an intriguing idea about music in outer space. Now, social theorists from Max Weber onwards have told us that in our modern and disenchanted age, the Enlightenment dream of reason has chased myth from the universe and transformed an ensouled cosmos into mostly empty space. But in her research, Meredith finds that at just such a historical moment, we find composers, among other artists, looking to outer space and finding it teeming with new myths. One of these days, we're going to do a show on that. But today, though, we decided to talk about stories. Meredith chose Ursula Le Guin's She Unnames Them, J.F. chose J.G. Ballard's Jaconda of the Twilight Noon, and I chose Stanislav Lem's The New Cosmogony. We didn't have time to do the last one, so we're saving that for our next episode. But for this episode, we're talking about the other two, and playing our usual glass bead game of finding the resonances between them. I'm not going to summarize the plot of these stories here, as we do that in the episode that follows, but I will say that what emerges in our conversation is an apprehension of those extraordinary states of experience where the polarities that structure our daily lives come undone, inner and outer, the named and the nameless, pain and pleasure, fear and joy. But perhaps that's not enough for you. Maybe it's not enough just to talk about these nameless and ecstatic zones beyond reason and fancy. No, you want more. You want to visit those zones, don't you? You want to plunge in, submerge yourself, lose yourself in an undifferentiated flux of becoming. You want to become mad and ecstatic. If that's the case, I can think of no better course of action than for you to join the Weird Studies Patreon, where our listeners are transcending the mundane on the regular. We've got a thriving community of more than 800 subscribers who are paying to read our essays and listen to our bonus episodes, for which we are very grateful. And we encourage you to follow their good example if you like what we're doing on this show, and also if you like the fact that we don't run ads preferring to rely on listener support to keep the lights on. But if you want something a bit more tangible than ideas in exchange for your coin, something more in the podcast merch line, head over to Cotton Bureau 
and check out the incredibly hip t-shirt design that our friend Corina Ulrich made for us. That helps too. Okay, on with the show. So how are we going to do this? What order do we want to do the stories in? You want to do it randomly? I've got a D3 here. Oh, yes. Let's do it randomly. All right. So uh, I'm just going by the order of in which I'm seeing you. So it'll be Phil. Okay. Phil is one. I'm two. And Meredith is three. That's the right. order I read them. Great. Two. That's me. All right. The story that I chose is a story by J.G. Ballard called The Gioconda of the Twilight Noon. It's an early Ballard story, relatively early, 1964, somewhat Lovecraftian weird tale that he wrote before he became the Ballard of Crash and Atrocity Exhibition and everything that came after. And I brought this in for several reasons. It's a story that I read within the last year and it was still on my mind. I also just wanted a way to wedge J.G. Ballard into the show because I've been... <laughs> He's one of my favorite writers and he's hardly ever come up. So I'm glad to have this opportunity to kind of just force him into the show for a little bit. I confess I have read next to nothing of Ballard, despite finding him an interesting seeming writer. Oh, God. He's somebody I have been meaning to read for decades. Yeah, he's an incredible writer, like, in my opinion. I think Crash is one of the great, great, great novels of the post-war era. It's so, so profound and strange and unique and ballsy um anyways this story is about a man who is temporarily blind he's recovering from surgery and he's functionally blind so he's covering his eyes and he's he and his wife are staying in a seaside or a riverside i guess this is a river estuary estuary side so they're on the coast of england somewhere and they're they're chilling there while he recovers and the story pertains to a series of visions he has. So basically without his sense of sight, he discovers the whole phenomenon of like kind of interior vision. He starts to see, and essentially it's a kind of story about astral projection. He starts to see Mm. this particular place in his mind and this particular figure emerges and he becomes kind of obsessed with this interior world that he's discovered thanks to his temporary blindness. And the story ends with the character you know, the doctor has removed his bandages and he can now see again. And the last scene is him having, he's gouged out his eyes so that he can return to his blind state permanently. His inner world. Um, mm-hmm. It's a very weird story um, mm-hmm. with all kinds of intertextual references to Leonardo da Vinci, importantly, but also Greek myth and all kinds of weird stuff. And it's really Lovecraftian in a very subtle way. It's got this you know, like Lovecraft loved coastal communities where weird things happened and the proximity to the sea uh, occasioning kind of the blurring of distinctions between inner and outer mm-hmm. sanity and madness and that sort of thing. I found it to be a very effective story for sure and kind of beautifully written. Um, but that's my short synopsis. I want to hear what you guys have to say about it and where we can go with it. What do you make of the gulls? The seagulls, yeah. Like, maybe just start there, because that's the first thing that we encounter in this story. 
Those confounded gulls, Richard Maitland complained to his wife. Can't you drive them away? That's the first sentence. And then you realize that he can't actually see them. Mm-hmm. Right. He can't always hear them either. There's a moment where the gulls fall silent. He just knows they're there. He can sense them. Right. Mm-hmm. And he's oppressed by their presence. And early on in the first page, there's a line about him imagining them plucking out his eyes, which, of course, foreshadows what happens at the end, where he, not only is he plucked out his eyes, but he's described as taking his place among the gulls. Uh, this is from the very end of the story. A moment later, Judith heard, Judith, his wife, heard his shout above the cries of the gulls. The sound came half in pain and half in triumph, and she ran down to the trees, uncertain whether he had injured himself or discovered something pleasing. Then she saw him standing on the bank, his head raised to the sunlight, the bright carmine on his cheeks and hands, an eager, unrepentant Oedipus. And so there he is among the gulls at the end. And the gulls, at one point, actually, he falls into this reverie and his wife comes home and sort of startles him out of his reverie. And he's very alarmed to be yanked out of this and his wife is sort of like oh are the gulls troubling you again and he and he sort of almost panics he's like no 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 no. leave him alone leave him alone yeah you know (laughs) and so like (laughs) the gulls mean something yeah the gulls have something to do with all of this i guess that's maybe the way i would start yeah what's that all about there seems to be a kind of synesthesia thing going on in the story where the sounds that he hears are translating or mm. becoming the images he's seeing. There's a kind of mm-hmm. weird. Mm-hmm. And the gulls seem to be the connection between his particular historical situation here as a man recovering from a surgery on the coast of what I'm assuming is England. I think it's actually said at some point. And the ancient coastalness of things, you know, like the, like the mm-hmm. gulls are connecting him to Circe and the Mediterranean Greek world. The, the, the gulls are this kind of a transhistorical presence that allow him to sink into this kind of astral world that he experiences. But maybe we should mm-hmm. say something about what he does see in his visions, because it's very specific mm-hmm. what he experiences. But you're right. Well, let's come back to the gulls, because I think... I think they're super important. The, the idea of the flock, of the pack, of the rhizomatic multiplicity confronted with his kind of individuated, lonely little self trying to come. There's something about the teemingness of the gulls and their cacophonous quality that seems to speak directly to the themes of the story. But I don't know if I could articulate it any better than that for now. I think you're right, though. And I, I'm now I'm thinking of Hitchcock's The Birds, which is all about that. I mean, just going off of the gull thing, I think part of their imagery has to do with the sound because the story talks a lot about like vision being obfuscated by various things. Like just in that first paragraph, or maybe it's on the second page, he like lifts his bandages for a minute to try and see what's out there. And uh, first he has this blurred image, but he also has these willows screening his vision and then there's all of this stuff that's continuously blurring his vision, but he's in the absence of that, he has all this sound coming in. And it's like the sound, I think y'all have talked about this before, but sound is like very hard to separate from yourself. Yes. Yeah. And it's almost like by not being able to see the birds, he doesn't have this objective distance from them. And he kind of oh, allows them to enter into his psyche through the sound. And at first it seems like he's like not into that. He doesn't he doesn't want to be penetrated by this 
And then he starts to give in to it as he becomes seduced by the visions he's having. Yeah, sound becomes really important there. And also memory. I don't know, we can talk about memory a little bit later, but this he has these like kaleidoscope visions of colors, just like beautiful shapes and things. And then he has visions of memories. And then he starts having these visions of the other place, this like primordial place that he thinks is a memory, but he also like seems like he can't place it. But I found that 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 memory aspect to be kind of connected to the sound aspect because memory also cannot be really extracted from who you are. So it's like all of this internal morphing of the self with other images with other senses and things. Yeah, I totally agree with you. I think that we have to be cautious not to think of this simply as a story about a man who can't see because it's, Oh yeah. I think more deeply, it's a man who's losing his capacity to differentiate Mm -hmm. himself from his surroundings. Mm -hmm. eh? So the spatial awareness, which is really tied to our sense of vision, right? Um, Mm -hmm. Parietal lobe handles spatial awareness and it's really connected to our visual system. And so when he's hearing the gulls, it doesn't matter if the gulls sound like they're far away, the distant gulls are in the head. This is the thing Mm -hmm. about oral phenomena is that you can hear something coming from a distance. You can hear a distant sound, but the distantness of the sound is part of its intimacy. It's still really close to you. And so Mm -hmm. without his sense of sight, he starts to lose all these boundaries. And then he loses the boundary between outer and inner, right? Mm -hmm. And then he loses the boundary between memory and imagination. So he starts to see things that at some point he connects because he starts seeing these blue cliffs, like this kind of coastal area, these blue cliffs. And then there's an estuary and he goes in and then there are caves there. And then in one of the caves, which is also a high gabled house, somehow Mm -hmm. he sees this woman in green and that becomes the figure, the Jaconda of the title, who is drawing him deeper and deeper into this other world that has become accessible to him thanks to the blindness, right? So if you read this story from a Jungian perspective, it's about a man discovering what Jung calls the collective unconscious, the deep, deep, deep stratum of images, primordial images that exist in everyone, maybe even exist as part of nature itself, but which require one to turn inwards in order to discover, at least to discover consciously. Otherwise, you're just manifesting it unconsciously out in the world around you. So the figure of the green woman, which is a figure we've seen before. I remember our show on M. John Harrison's uh, The Course of the Heart, where there's a whole bit in that book about the green woman. The grown woman. Oh, the grown woman. The grown woman who is green in the book. Mm. And we could connect that again to the show we did on the Empress, right? Mm. And then from a Jungian perspective, you could talk about the anima, right? So this kind of feminine energy inside the imagination of usually a man in classical Jungian terms whose function is to draw, one of whose functions is to draw the person into the cavernous, labyrinthine kind of world of the unconscious, where all distinctions disappear, you know, where things are just kind of a seething chaos of strange symbolic meaning. I don't know. Which which I feel like that adumbrates the story that Meredith chose. She unnames them, what you just said. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. We'll get to that. Maybe Mm -hmm. we should move on to the next story. Maybe we'll come back to this one. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Actually, that's not a bad idea rather than having three sort of 
blocks, one for each story, like maybe doing a quick skirmish. In that case, on each one, yeah, and then I, I and think then they do talk it. to each other. They do. Yeah. In that case, let me just finish then my point about the anima and this mm-hmm. strange kind of um, liminal f- uh, feminine figure that uh, yes. you find in the story, but also in so many other stories and myths and whatnot. The story's called the Jaconda of the Twilight Noon. Of course, Twilight Noon, then you have this weird conjunction of opposites in there. Uh, we can talk about that. But the Jaconda is a reference to the Mona Lisa by Leonardo da Vinci, who is famously a liminal figure because of her inscrutable expression, her smile, which is also maybe a sneer, which you're not quite sure, the strangeness of the landscape behind her. And I agree with Walter Pater mentions this. Everything is in the background with Leonardo. The strangeness of the paintings, like his backgrounds are actually really interesting. And in fact, the blue cliffs that Maitland, the character in the story, sees, he at some point he connects them with the blue cliffs that appear in the background of the famous Virgin of the Rocks painting by Leonardo. Mm -hmm. This is Walter Pater, famous 19th century esthete critic. Uh, This is him writing about the Mona Lisa. She is older than the rocks among which she sits. Like the vampire, she has been dead many times and learned the secrets of the grave, and has been a diver in deep seas, and keeps their fallen day about her. He's describing this very kind of decadent era, appropriate, semi-demonic feminine figure who stands at the threshold of the unknown, of the unconscious, of the underworld, and whatnot. And that figure, I think, connects this Ballard story to the story that Meredith chose. We can always come back to this story, though, right? Because I yeah, feel yeah. like we've only just begun oh, yeah. to oh, yeah, for talk sure. about it. But let's talk about that connection with Meredith's story. So, Meredith, why don't you introduce your story for us? Sure. Okay. I chose a story called She Unnames Them by Ursula K. Le Guin. And I think this one was written in 1985, originally for The New Yorker, I think. But I read it in a collection of stories that she put out not too long ago called The Real and the Unreal. It's a very large collection of her stories. I recommend it. It's good. Um, But this one is particularly very short and very compact, which is why I chose it. Basically, it follows an unnamed I, who's a female person, as she lists all these animals that are giving up their names. So... She starts with some whales, dolphins, seals. They just are no longer called that anymore. And then she goes through yaks, horses, turkeys, pets, cats, as they all just return the names that were given to them by human beings and become categoryless. Um, and then at the end of that, she notices that she feels this very, very personal connection to them, something that had been cut off by the fact that they were named. And then she says, okay, it's my turn. And she goes to Adam, her husband, and she says, well, this has been useful, but I don't need it anymore, basically. And then he's like, okay, honey. And he basically like ignores her. And then she says she's going to leave, and he ignores her again, and she leaves. And then she realizes that even if he had asked her to explain, she wouldn't be able to because she no longer has the words. And that's the end. 
I chose this because it made me start thinking about about the use of words and the use of names. And really in giving up names, she's really talking about category names like horse, not like individual um, personal that's, names. That's super key. I think that's yes. super important. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And she even talks about the scientific, you know, genus, species and all of those other names that trail along behind, behind them like a tin can or something like that (laughs) so and and then the car yeah yeah and at one point she says the dogs and the pets have a little bit of trouble because they're like oh but i really like people calling me polly or whatever and she's like no 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 that's not it that's not it it's it's really just dog you know you can choose to have an individual name if you want to but it made me think of names it also made me think a little bit of uh bergson and his idea that like concepts and terminology and stuff don't really belong to the reality of things themselves and that by using intuition rather than coming at everything with these pre-made concepts we can perhaps get a little bit closer to what it actually is and have more of a connection to that and a connection to life itself so that's why i chose it fantastic i I love this story yeah phil your thoughts i mean i immediately thought of the biblical story of like Adam giving animals their names. This is clearly troping on that. Mm -hmm. And I have one particular, I guess, so like this is my material, my prepared material that I'm coming in, is it reminds me of a line from M.C. Richard's Marvelous Centering, which we talked about in a relatively early show in the first chapter, which was the bit that we talked about, centering as dialogue. So because this is... Eve or perhaps Lilith, if we follow the story that Adam's first wife was Lilith, but she didn't work out so great. So a more compliant mate had to be found for Adam. In any event, it is a mate of Adam. And this immediately raises a specter of gender. The idea that, you know, Adam is in this story behaving in, I mean, and there's a good degree of sort of comedy or like at least ironic humor. In this story, Adam is acting like a kind of stereotype guy. (laughs) Like he's in his workshop doing his projects. And so like the little dialogue between him and the unnamed woman who is telling us this story. I love what she says to him because it totally sounds like something you would say to a guy to try and be placating so that he doesn't get his feelings hurt about it. She writes, I resolutely put anxiety away, went to Adam and said, you and your father lent me this, gave it to me, actually. It's been really useful, but it doesn't exactly seem to fit very well lately. But thanks very much. It's really been very useful. (laughs) I love that Mm -hmm. because it totally sounds like somebody trying to break it to you gently. And she's talking about her name there. Yeah. Yeah. Woman. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That's what she's giving back. And the response is so funny. She continues, it is hard to give back a gift without sounding peevish or ungrateful. And I did not want to leave him with that impression of me. He was not paying much attention as it happened and said only, put it down over there, okay? And went on with what he was doing. (laughs) And then (laughs) uh, skipping over a few sentences, she sort of like kind of doesn't know what to do. He's just not paying attention. And then she's like, well, goodbye, dear. I hope the garden key turns up. (laughs) He was fitting parts together and said, without looking around, okay, fine, dear. When's dinner? Yeah, right. (laughs) 
And now the last paragraph I want to read, and it's because yeah. it's um, this is an, a very end-weighted story, where it's short. It's a little jeweled story, but I feel like the whole first two and a half pages sets up this last paragraph that just snaps shut like a mousetrap. It's just perfect. I'm not sure, I said in response to the question about dinner. I'm going now with the... I hesitated and finally said, with them, you know and went on. In fact, I had only just then realized how hard it would have been to explain myself. I could not chatter away as I used to do, taking it all for granted. My words now must be as slow, as new, as single, as tentative as the steps I took going down the path, away from the house, between the dark-branched tall dancers motionless against the winter shining. Beautiful. Beautiful. Yeah. It disappears in a puff of poetry. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. The yeah. story just... I, I love how... Uh, sorry, keep going. Well, I have I have a place that I want to go with that, mm -hmm. that the gendered aspect of it, mm -hmm. but I really actually want to hear what you were going to say, Meredith. I'll come back to what I was going to say. I remember it. Okay. Okay. I want to hear it. Um, yeah. I wanted to bring up that part too, because... It's like once she gets rid of the words, once she gets rid of the scientific categories, all she's left with to really comprehend reality is the aesthetic. So she doesn't say that she walks away among nice. the trees. She says she walks away between the dark branched tall dancers motionless against the winter shining. And that's kind of reflected early in the story as each animal gives up its name it kind of just melts into this natural imagery so like the whales and dolphins and like the sea creatures sliding into anonymity as into their element and mm. there's a part where she talks about the insects parting with their names in vast clouds and swarms of ephemeral syllables buzzing and stinging and humming and flitting and crawling and tunneling away and it, it's just all this aesthetic comprehension this aesthetic massive like imagery and stuff right and it's all movement yes. all of those words you just use it's all words of movement of they're all activities and this is a thing that really knocks me out about that last sentence mm -hmm. going down the path away from the house between the dark branch tall dancers motionless against the winter shining and that last the winter shining not the winter sunlight yeah right right but keeping it in a kind of verb form, yeah. mm -hmm. a, a gerund, where the only concrete thing there is dancers, but even that is a metaphor. Yeah. And she's beginning just at the end to slip into a new way of speaking, a new way of knowing in which everything, it's all sensation. It's all the coming and going of sensation. It actually reminds me of the Plun Ukbar, the attempt to, the, you know, that Borges story that we did a show about where he talks about in Plun, there's this kind of pure idealism where there are no things, there's just actions. Mm -hmm. And he gives an example of how you might talk about the moon rising. He comes up with the, the word moondling, or at least that's how it is in the translation <laughs> that I read. And it seems to be that it's a kind of a beautiful movement here, just as Meredith says, it's like it's dissolving into just aesthesis. Is that a yeah. word? Aesthesis is a word. Yeah, for sure. Uh, Jacques Rancière wrote a great book called Aesthesis, which is... Oh, nice. Yeah. But uh, that's uh, he doesn't go anywhere near what, where we're going. Um, he can't touch our level of insight. <laughs> no, <it's> just, <laughs> Uh, the, sort of sorry, it's being silly. The, as you're talking here, I mean, I I love what you're saying, both of you. And, and again, I'm I've got Walter Pater's book, The Renaissance, 
on hand. And the most famous part of this book is the conclusion, which really inspired a lot of the aesthetes, decadents, symbolists, and stuff, the late 19th century poets and painters who they really drew a lot of inspiration from this text. And the first paragraph of the conclusion is maybe worth reading because it pertains to this specifically. Peter wrote, let us begin with that which is without our physical life. Fix upon it in one of its more exquisite intervals, the moment, for instance, of delicious recoil from the flood of water in summer heat. What is the whole physical life in that moment but a combination of natural elements to which science gives their names? But those elements, phosphorus and lime and delicate fibers, are present not in the human body alone. We detect them in places most remote from it. Our physical life is a perpetual motion of them. The passages of the blood, the waste and repairing of the lenses of the eye, the modification of the tissues of the brain under every ray of light and sound, processes which science reduces to simpler and more elementary forces. Like the elements of which we are composed, the action of these forces extends beyond us. It rusts iron and ripens corn. Far out on every side of us, those elements are broadcast, driven in many currents, and birth and gesture and death and the springing of violets from the grave are but a few of 10,000 resultant combinations. That clear perpetual outline of face and limb is but an image of ours, under which we group them, a design in the web, the actual threads of which pass out beyond it. This at least of flame-like our life has, that it is but the concurrence renewed from moment to moment of forces parting sooner or later on their ways. So he's calling us to that aesthetic dimension of forces clashing, right? Aesthetics isn't just form. It's also movement and mm-hmm. agon, clash, right? It's contrast mm-hmm. and, and things vying for their own kind of existence in a, this kind of seething combat of qualities. That's maybe putting it too violently, but I find that in those passages in Le Guin's story, we're getting a sense of this kind of like symphonic agon of quality, of color, of movement that undergirds our illusory overlay of a stable world of fixed objects. And she's calling us to that underlying seething chaos, which is anything but dis- – it's not disordered. It's just – it's a world in which only proper nouns exist. And again, mm-hmm. going back to the gender thing, the patriarchal cliche is that when a child's being born, the father asks, is it a boy or a girl? Hoping mm-hmm. for a boy. The mother looks at the child and gives the child its proper noun, its name. So the feminine, the yin, is, uh, you might say, inheres in the singular in what is the thisness, the hexady of things, whereas the masculine right. or yang will try to come down with categories, with naming, with finding yeah. the commonalities that order existence. But the chaos belongs to the yin. Ah, perfect. Yeah. And I mean, that hints at a, a reciprocal kind of relationship, a mutually beneficial relationship here. And again, I want to avoid saying, oh, the masculine, the yang, na- common n- nouns are useless. We should get rid of them and all live in this kind of Dionysiac excess of pure chaos. 
Rather, it's kind of ironic that in order to tell her story, Eve in the story, or is it Lilith? I'm not sure. But Adam's wife in the story has to rename all the animals to tell us how she unnamed them. She has to list mm-hmm. them off. She has to call them yes. yaks and dogs in order to say that she took their names. So there's this kind of oscillation between the yin and yang, between the purely aesthetic and the conceptual. And reality seems to inhere more in that oscillation than in one side or the other. If I can jump back in, this is a good moment for me to introduce Mary Carolyn Richards. MC Richards, as I like to say, my favorite MC. Um, <laughs> Pause for laughter. Yeah. Uh-huh. I, we should, I, I'm going to I'm gonna add some canned Laugh laughter. Laugh track. To the, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah to the, we should do that in all our episodes. <laughs> add a laugh track. Oh, dear. So now you're going to resort to like putting in weird sound effects like, boy. Yeah, exactly. We have yeah. just a soundboard going. Yeah. Soundboard. This is on the first page of Centering as Dialogue, which was the first chapter of Centering that we discussed in episode whatever it was. On the first page of this, which is page nine of the book, she writes, there's a joke that always amuses me whenever I think of it. You may know it too. A man and a woman have stayed happily married for years. Nobody can understand how they do it. Everybody else is getting divorced or separated, suffering the agonies of marital estrangement. A friend asks the husband of the lucky pair how they have been able to make a go of it. What's the secret of their success? Oh, answers the husband, it's very simple. We simply divide up the household problems. My wife makes all the minor decisions and I make all the major decisions. No friction. I see, says a friend. And what are the minor decisions your wife makes, for example? And the major decisions, what are they? Well, answers the husband, my wife makes all the little decisions, like where shall we send our son to college? Shall we sell the house? Should we renew our medical insurance? And then I take the big ones. Should Red China join the United Nations? Should the United (laughs) States disarm unilaterally? Is peace possible? I think this is Mary Carolyn Richards continuing. I think this is a good joke because it takes a warm and humorous view of what is exactly the task of a marriage. A marriage of one person with another, or a marriage within one person, of what seem to be separate concerns. And yet, unless both are managed well, one's life, or one's marriage, tends to be wobbly indeed. And I love this. First of all, because M.C. Richards is working on an implicit assumption of gender, which is very much my implicit assumption, which I discussed at some length in the Empress episode. The idea that masculine and feminine are in themselves arcana. They're mysteries that cannot be simply identified with the manifestations of that energy in life. And each one of us contains a kind of sandwich of multiple parts of both yin and yang, just like each hexagram in the I Ching is a sandwich of broken and solid lines. We each combine these things in ourselves. And so, you know, for the sake of the story and the joke, we're going to say, well, it's the husband who is in the Adam position here. You know, his mind on big matters, you know, the United Nations and all of that kind of thing. Whereas the wife is on matters of personal importance, matters that are important to them in their marriage, like where should our son go to college? And the joke is that the father slash husband being completely captured by his own idea of what is important fails to recognize that, of course, the supposedly small matters that his wife, the feminine matters, are momentous as well. 
But the point that MC Richards is making is that the balance in that, you know, the marriage in that joke, the ideal equilibrium, that's farmed out to the wife and the husband separately. But in each of us, we have those different elements that have to come to some kind of harmony. And that is the point she's trying to make throughout this book, mm. centering. All of this is to say that there is something, if we're just going back to those fundamental arcana of yin and yang, of feminine and masculine in this sort of cosmic and rather abstract sense, then yes, the business of naming and establishing general signification, categories. Common nouns, um, yeah. Yeah, mm -hmm. that is the yang business. Mm -hmm. And the yin business is... Eves or Lilith, the narrator of that story, she is divesting these animals of the categories so that they can bear forth in their absolute unique particularity, mm -hmm. uh, a particularity that she tells us she hungers for. And the other passage in this very short story that really captured me is when she articulates what it is she's after in unnaming, the, just this particularity of things. None were left now to unname, yet how close I felt to them when I saw one of them swim or fly or trot or crawl across my way or over my skin or stalk me in the night or go along beside me for a while in the day. They seemed far closer than when their names had stood between myself and them like a clear barrier, so close that my fear of them and their fear of me became one same fear. And the attraction that many of us felt, the desire to smell one another's smells, feel or rub or caress one another's scales or skin or feathers or fur, taste one another's blood or flesh, keep one another warm— that attraction was now all one with the fear, and the hunter could not be told from the hunted, nor the eater from the food. Nor the lion from the lamb. Nor the inside from the outside. Like in the Ballard story. Nice.
At one point in the Ballard story, Maitland, he's astral projecting into this world. He goes into the cave, which is also a house, and he sees the woman in green and he goes up the stairs and then he can't see her face because of the light. But all of a sudden she turns and he sees her face and he actually reacts with terror. He screams Mm -hmm. out his wife's name, Judith. (laughs) And so you're wondering, what did he see her? But then the narrator describes what he saw as a Lamia, a Lamia being Mm -hmm. like a a kind of Greek demon, feminine demon. And um, somewhat like Lilith, by the way, like Lilith, yeah. And Lilith, who in Jewish folklore, Lilith lives on as a kind of crone, right? A kind of like, uh, who can manifest almost like a vampire. Yeah. Yeah. She can, well, she can manifest. She's one of the the classic triple goddesses who can manifest in different forms. Sometimes a really beautiful woman, you come close and all of a sudden she's like this horrible crone. And you know, that, that kind of archetype Mm -hmm. is so, um, uh, demon of the wasteland too. Of the yes. waste spaces, like for example, of the outside, yeah, exactly, mm. of the barrens, of the wasteland, of what lies outside of the framed out and protected precinct of the known, and so we can look at that archetype and see in it a simple kind of um, like how can I say this? It's easy to criticize that figure, the triple goddess, the crone, the witch, the vampire, as purely kind of elements of a kind of patriarchal anti-female kind of uh, system of thought maybe okay and and that is essentially what it is like in a way that's what's going on but i think that it's basically inevitable that if you're adopting the standpoint of that which values and prioritizes clarity lucidity reason you know if you're adopting that kind of quote unquote patriarchal standpoint as the basis that whatever lies outside will manifest in that form and you would not be doing it justice if you were giving it some other form so it's like a tradition will banish certain things, but in its banishing them, affirms them. For instance, like mm-hmm. if you read the Catholic Catechism, there's a specific section when it says, do not play around with tarot cards and fortune telling and astrology. Mm-hmm. But by saying don't do that, it's saying these things work. Right? Yeah. <laughs> so it's allowing them to exist and denies them at the same time. But in its denying them, it affirms them. And so the people burning Harry Potter books and the evangelicals, when they were burning Harry Potter books, were telling us magic is real. (laughs) Like, in a sense, they were affirming the reality of magic. And so you have to always look a little bit beyond the simple kind of semantic, immediate judgment involved in an image to look at what it implies. Right. So like the figure of the Lamia, who comes to usually to the male protagonist as a dangerous vampire is also, as Jung constantly points out, the only way that such a figure can manifest before it can become the anima in its more positive aspect and the man embarking upon the individuation process whereby he can accept not only the feminine in himself, but eventually, hopefully, the feminine in the world. There's an easy way to kind of uh, categorize, ironically, this sort of thing which I think it's better to dwell in ambiguity when you're dealing with these sorts of stories and to see what they're revealing as opposed to, yeah, drawing conclusions about what they're, what they're implying. Well, which story are you talking about? I'm talking which... about, I'm talking about specifically, I'm going back to the Ballard, but I'm also, uh, I'm obviously the Ursula Le Guin takes the opposite route. It's, it's really kind of, um, 
affirming the kind of heroic stance of the Lamia, right? It's seeing the outside as positive. And, mm-hmm. and I just want to go back to this idea that reality in here is in the oscillation between these two points of view as opposed to one or the other. Yeah, the, the Ursula Le Guin story, it definitely is portraying the female protagonist as like the hero, but it's also complicated. It's not that she is overjoyed at this state of affairs. I mean, she no. talks about the first emotion after having done this is fear and the fear that she has, the fear the animals have becoming one and... So I think it's kind of even like oppositely similar to seeing the Lamia, like just the unknown is scary and trying to trying to integrate this part that's been left out is scary and it's going to be hard and it's challenging to try and integrate the two. I think when you blow everything open, like who knows what comes next, you know, it's just like getting rid of the buffered self. That's the note that I wrote down, like the buffered self, you want to feel like you have an identity. You want to feel like you are, you can categorize what you are and say solidly, this is what I am. And, uh, once you open up yourself to the fact that you might be other things, it's, it's honestly very disorienting. Yeah, And, uh, I think that this, this goes along with like category names, but just personally, I know that this can also happen with individual names because I don't know, you, you tend to think of your name as like part of you, not just an object that you possess that you can just like give away whenever you want. But I mean, people change their names. I've changed my name before. And honestly, it was weirder than I expected because for my whole life, I had had this name that I referred to myself as. And it somehow represented me. It had some kind of like, I don't know, not maybe not magical, but seemingly magical connection to who I was. And then I changed my last name when I got married. And suddenly I was like, I feel like I'm the same person, but also like people are not referring to me as the same person. So am I really the same person? Right. And I kind of had this like weird existential crisis. Like, I, I don't know. I think that names kind of have a power over a thing. Well, that's a fundamental aspect of magic, the idea that there are names you can call things that are their actual names that you therefore have power over. Oh, them. sure. Yeah. I, th- this is like a, a big thing in like mythology and stuff too. Like Rumpelstiltskin and I mean, Ursula, Ursula Le Guin's. Ur- Earthsea, yeah. right. Earthsea, yeah, yeah. That has that too. Yeah. Magic is all predicated on the discovery and harnessing of the true names of things. Yeah. Um, And speaking of gender thing, I was just thinking about trans people that I know who have changed their names and it just felt like their old name was no longer sufficient to describe who they were. And they had to discover this true name that was actually reflective of who they are. Right. Also, you know, there's a couple of ways that I find myself thinking about this Le Guin story. And one is just sort of psychologically, because... What's my point of reference to a realm or domain of life in which categories disappear and things stand forth in their ineffable particularity? You know, that's the kind of stuff you encounter in meditation. That's the business of mysticism. So I can look at this and think, well, you know, Le Guin herself is something of a mystic fascinated with Taoism who might have been wanting to kind of work through an idea of like, okay, so what would it be to live without the firm edges and handles and the purchase that 
we get on reality, the handholds we get on reality by virtue of having these names. Mm -hmm. But then it occurs to me also, there's the very obvious troping on the Genesis story. And in as much as Genesis tells us that Adam names all the creatures of the earth, here we have a counter narrative where the protagonist unnames them. And so I was sort of thinking like, well, that throws an interesting light on something that isn't so much psychological as cosmological, which is what is it that Adam did in naming mm -hmm. all the creatures of the earth? Mm -hmm. I was thinking about that too, and this idea that, well, I don't know, language could be seen as something that we place upon reality that in no way affects it. But I think this actually connects to the Lem story that, that Phil picked in that like, in observing things, in naming them, in categorizing them, we are, I think, manipulating them, if not manipulating ourselves, because language changes how we think, language changes how we interact with things, and that's inevitably potentially going to change those things themselves just in the way that we interact with them. I was thinking about like feral children who never learned how to talk or you know, never learned language. And then their brains work differently. There was this one I was reading about and she, uh, she never learned how to talk until she was like a teenager. And then they started teaching her how to talk and she was having so much trouble differentiating between me and you. And she like had no, mm -hmm. she yeah. had this like difficulty, like objectifying herself from other people. You and see then, that in toddlers. Like, All, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And then like her, the language centers of her brain were in the opposite places people's usually are. Really? And yeah. 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 I Whoa, think she was, fascinating. she was right handed. So the language should be in the left hand, but then it was in the right brain. And so, yeah, it's very interesting. Erickson argued hard in that direction sometimes at least that you're getting more of reality if you get rid of the conceptual overlay. Uh, and in a sense, that's undeniably true, because if you're reducing things to your concept of them, you're seeing less of them than if you weren't doing that. The question is, <laughs> is it even possible not to do that? What's interesting about Adam naming the animals is that Adam isn't naming the animals in a particular language. Although I guess a Kabbalist would say that he was using Hebrew because Hebrew is the language of God himself. But Adam is giving things their true names, right? And Adam isn't yet a man when he does this, because Eve hasn't been created. So he's not a man. He's just Adam. He's just a, a human. And then after the fall is when you get disparate languages and different ways of calling a yak a yak and that sort of thing. And all that the, the, you know, the story of Babel is all about that. When Babel is abandoned, God makes sure that never again will there be a single language because that gives humans too much power. So humans have to be divided linguistically, i.e. conceptually. They have mm -hmm. to all see things from different angles such that they never see a thing in itself as it is. They have to see only whatever perspective is available to them from their vantage point or whatever. And they give names to things in accordance to that limited perspective. But when Adam is naming the animals before the fall, I think it's something very different that's happening. It's not humans developing language, and, and in a sense it is that, but on a deeper level, from a more Kabbalistic point of view, it's that Adam, as the receiver or the embodiment of the image of God in creation, is allowing each thing to become its singular self. 
I think Adam is naming things the way a mother names her child as opposed to the way 17th century scientists is naming different types of turtles or whatever. It's not the same process. There's something cosmological, as Phil was saying, going on in Genesis. I just want to jump back a step and respond to what Meredith was saying about this feral child, which is fascinating. I want to learn more about that. But also... Some of what we're talking about with naming it categorization, like the creation of abstract categories, is also something that people who've done a lot of work on the psychodynamics of orality and literacy, like oral cultures and literate cultures, also think about. So I'm thinking of Walter Ong's famous book, Orality and Literacy. There's a chunk of this book where he talks about the fieldwork of an anthropologist named Luria, who interviewed, I think, Siberian peasants. And this is back in the, I think, maybe the 40s. It was a while ago. It was when widespread literacy had yet to really penetrate into those regions of the world. One of the points that Ong makes is that once literacy is introduced, whole societies move very, very quickly away from the psychodynamics of orality. A, A whole way of thinking and experiencing the world is given to you by the fact that a word, for example, is never a thing you look at. It is never a thing. It is never embodied in a permanent object. A word is always an event. Right. Because it's always something coming out of someone's mouth, right? Mm -hmm. I couldn't possibly boil down his argument quickly, but I want to point out some of the things that happen when people are living in a society where words have always been events and have never been things. You get people who are almost unable to think in ways that we think of as logical. So let me give you an example. This is on page 52, bottom of 52 of Orality and Literacy. In Luria's fieldwork, requests for definitions of even the most concrete objects met with resistance. Quote, try to explain to me what a tree is. The answer, why should I? Everyone knows what a tree is. They don't need me telling them, replied (laughs) one illiterate peasant, age 22. Why define when a real-life setting is infinitely more satisfactory than a definition? Basically, the peasant was right. There is no way to refute the world of primary orality. All you can do is walk away from it into literacy. Mm. How would you define a tree in two words? Quote, in two words, apple tree, elm, poplar. (laughs) Say you go to a place where there are no cars. What will you tell people a car is? If I go, I'll tell them that buses have four legs, chairs in front for people to sit on, a roof or a shade, and an engine. But when you get right down to it, I'd say, if you get in a car and go for a drive, you'll find out, end quote. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the respondent enumerates some features, but turns back ultimately to personal situational experience. Right, mm. right. Mm-hmm. Embodiment. Everything yeah. is an event. Yeah. And mm. that's what you lose. That was like Plato's big problem, right? With, Absolutely. With text, with written language. So I want to jump back, though, to talk a little bit more about the Ballard story. Okay. I mean, for one thing... There is a certain connection we can make to where this conversation has gotten with the Le Guin story in so far as we are talking about, among other things, an inner world of experience, for example, of the illiterate peasant who is confronted with the categorical and logical style of thought of Luria, the interviewer, and the peasant feeling like there's a certain unshakable reality of a world that they remain loyal to and that you can pry them away from only with difficulty. And one of the points that Ong makes is that 
people don't go quietly, that you see a lot of the horrors of colonialism had to do with countries that suddenly were provided with an alphabet, which had hugely destabilizing consequences in terms of mass psychology, at least according to Ong. Well, likewise, here we have somebody who is turns away from the daylight world to an inner world, a world lit by an inner sun. Yeah. Something I love about this story is just the title of it, The Jaconda of the Twilight Noon. That is so evocative to me of a world of the inside that's lit, but by a different sun. Yeah. It's funny, I was playing Skyrim this weekend, because of course I was. And I was in this one part, the Black Reach, which is this underground world that's been created by the dwarves, but the dwarves in Skyrim are long gone and nobody knows whatever happened to them. Mm. Classic example of that fantasy trope that you and I have talked about, JF. Yeah. The characters in fantasy, sword and sorcery fantasies are always belated. They're always picking their way through the ruins of cultures that long predated them and that they don't understand. And so this is a wonderful example of this. And in the middle of the Black Reach is this huge orange glowing globe, an artificial sun. And it casts this eerie glow over this landscape. So you're in this subterranean landscape, but it has its own sun. It's the most beautiful poetic way of expressing the strange illumination of dreams. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, in a dream, even if you dream you're outside, like... Is it sunny out in a dream? Yeah. Even when it's sunny, it's not exactly sunny. It always feels like shadowed and twilight. And even if it's dark, it's a darkness you can see in a dream. Like everything is lit by definition. And so far as there's mm-hmm. no actual source of light, things are bioluminescent in dreams. You know, they're kind of yes. emanating their own light. I had a dream that took place in a cave just the other day. It was very vivid. It was like weirdly kind of similar to this and I hadn't actually read this yet. And then I was like, whoa, shiny, like green caves. Weird. Yeah. And in the story, I think the first time he talks about the caves and the cliffs that he's seeing in his mind, he talks about how there's this strange luminescence, this light coming from within it. And later on, Mm -hmm. that light is actually associated with the woman herself, that she is the one providing this light or illuminating the place. This kind of inner bioluminescent self-generated light of objects providing their own light. That calls us back to, first of all, Le Guin's story, because if you see conceptuality as this kind of uh, uh, rational light illuminating things and revealing what they are, if you take that away and you're still seeing things, where is the light coming from? Well, it's coming from the things themselves. That's why things can only have proper nouns. They can only have their own names. They can't have general names or general categories anymore. Whatever you see of them is what they are showing you of themselves. Likewise, in Genesis, to make that connection again, there are two moments where light appears in Genesis. There's the let there be light at the very beginning, and then he hangs the sun in the sky and the moon, and then we Mm -hmm. have light as we know it. So what the hell was that light at the beginning? What Mm. is it that God creates when he says, let there be light? It's not the light of the sun. It's not the light of the stars. All that stuff comes later. So... Is Genesis referring to that inner luminosity of things in themselves, this kind of primordial shining, you know, to go back to that last word of Le Guin's story, this shining of things in themselves before they are named by our intellect? Maybe. Again, to go from the very beginning of the Bible to the very end, you know, one of the last 
great visions in the Bible is the one of the last great images is the bride of Jerusalem, you know, the Virgin Mary at the very end of time appearing to the author of Revelation as, and I think I'm quoting, a woman clothed in the sun with the moon beneath her feet and a crown of 12 stars on her head. So we have all the sources of light that are available to us in nature, the stars, the moon, the sun, suddenly wrapped up in this primordial feminine figure that is now revealing itself to be the source of light. And so maybe we're going back to that more primordial light, which is associated with the feminine, the yin, that which precedes and exceeds conceptualization, a kind of deeper reality that is occluded from us because of our tendency to put labels on things. talk about hypnagogia, which is the the scientific voice of reason. So I like this about the story. I like many things about the story. But one thing I like is that the scientific voice of reason appears. You always need that in a weird story. Not always, but it's welcome. It reminds me of something that Lionel Snell, aka Ramsey Duke, says that uh, religious authority is not an enemy of magic, but because it is so opposite to the operations of magic, it is welcomed as a guest. Right. We have to welcome the presence of an anti-magical religious authoritarian as a guest at the table, somebody joining us and perhaps has a role to play. That's very typical of the way Lionel thinks. And I feel like the scientific voice of authority plays a certain kind of role in weird fiction, where we have to get somebody who's going to tell us want to think about this, but then there's going to be something in the story that exceeds that frame, while not necessarily negating what it is that the scientific authority says. The scientific authority may well be right. So this is when Dr. Phillips comes to visit Maitland, the fellow who is temporarily, soon to be permanently blind. And so I'm going to read this episode where the doctor visits. The next morning, Dr. Phillips called to change his dressing. Excellent, excellent, he commented, holding his torch in one hand as he retaped Maitland's eyelids to his cheeks. Another week and you'll be out of this for good. At least you know what it's like for the blind. One can envy them, Maitland said. Really? They see with an inner eye, you know. In a sense, everything there is more real. That's a point of view. Dr. Phillips replaced the bandages. He drew the curtains. What have you seen with yours? Maitland made no reply. Dr. Phillips had examined him in the darkened study, but the thin torch beam and the few needles of light around the curtains had filled his brain like arc lights. He waited for the glare to subside, realizing that his inner world, the grotto, the house of mirrors and the enchantress, had been burned out of his mind by the sunlight. They're hypnagogic images, Dr. Phillips remarked, fastening his bag. You've been living in an unusual zone, sitting around doing nothing, but with your optic nerves alert, a no-man's land between sleep and consciousness, I'd expect all sorts of strange things. After he had gone, Maitland said to the unseen walls, his lips whispering below the bandages, Doctor, give me back my eyes. Ooh, so rifty. 
such a great, weird, <laughs> rifty little moment. Yeah. The give me back my eyes thing reminds me of the E.T.A. Hoffman novella, The yes. Sandman, which yes. we also talked about. But quite apart from that, the Blythe explanation, oh, that's hypnagogic images. Hypnagogic images always strikes me as something like the word placebo. Right. Like when people say, oh, well, you know, that's a placebo effect. What I think is dumb is like the thing of like, oh, well, you just thought it worked. So it's yeah. not or real. It's... But if it worked, it was totally real. Another you know example Another example is sleep paralysis. Uh, it's like, oh, yes. I, last night I woke up, I was paralyzed, this demon climbed on top of me. It's like, oh, that was sleep paralysis. <laughs> it's mm -hmm. like, yeah. what does that it's even like, mean? <laughs> it's almost as if we give a name to the mysterious thing and we think we are purging the mysterious thing of its mystery which goes right mm -hmm. to the to the point mm -hmm. that Guin is making right is that ah. it's like by naming something we allow ourselves to stop thinking about it right we can yeah. stop thinking hypnagogic images what are they they're images that come to us when we enter that liminal twilight zone between states of being between wakefulness and sleep and one of the reasons i love this story is because of experiences i've had like for instance this has happened a few times in my life and it ha usually happens in concentrated periods where for a week, every night I'll get this, is that I start seeing faces I'm falling asleep. Have you ever experienced this? I start seeing incredibly realistic faces of people mm. turning to me to look at me or looking at me. And I've always thought that these were the dead, right? That these were people who had passed on and who are you know, still around for some reason. That's just the way I experience it. And I don't know if that's what it is, but what is particularly interesting about these experiences is the absolute reality of these faces. These aren't sketchy, face-ish objects in my imagination that I'm picturing. These are full-fledged photorealistic faces that I'm seeing, but I'm saying photorealistic. It's not right, quite right because they're not images I'm seeing. They're, I'm seeing them in my mind, but I'm seeing them at the same time, with my eyes, it's really hard to explain. Have you ever experienced it's impossible this? Impossible to put in words. Yeah, you yes. can't. Yeah, yeah. It's incredibly hard to explain what that is. I've also had that experience when I was a kid and I was doing LSD and I would close my eyes and see full-fledged landscapes that I could travel through. Mm -hmm. It's like, where is this landscape being generated? Is my mind capable of just spontaneously creating a full-fledged world with infinite granularity? Just like that, where is this? What is this? And to call it hypnagogic doesn't seem to explain anything because all the mystery is in the details of what happens in such experiences and what you're actually seeing. Yeah, I've never had that kind of like hypnagogic vision before, but my actual regular dreams are very, very vivid. And like I could talk about them for long, long time describing all the details of everything that I remember. And it's just like sometimes I have a dream. Like the one I had about the cave. Right. That things happen. And then in my waking time, I'm just like, I wonder what's going on there. I hope that they like, you know, figured it out because some <laughs> shit was going down when I was there. And I don't know. And like, I don't know if there's really a word for like when you have prophetic dreams or whatever. But I mean, that stuff is weird. Yeah. That stuff happens to me a lot where I'll dream of a thing and then it'll happen or I'll dream about a thing and then I'll wake up and be like, oh, I know what that means. <laughs> or like, and, mm. and I don't know how to explain that, but it's, it's very weird. And just being like, ah, oh, it was just a dream. It was just a coincidence. Like, yeah, I just don't think that's satisfying. I totally agree.
It's like, uh, I think Borges put it nicely. He said, the true mystery isn't the content of dreams, but the fact of dreaming. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But on, on the other hand, you could say that what makes sleep paralysis such a poor explanation for what happens to people who experience sleep paralysis, what makes it's just a dream such a poor way of explaining or describing what happened to you in that dream is that these terms are overriding the specificity of these experiences, which are Mm -hmm. as specific and as unique as something that happens in your life. Like if somebody comes to you and says, oh my God, I had a car accident. You know, I crashed my car. It's like, ah, that's just reality. Like, (laughs) don't worry about it. That was just reality. It doesn't, doesn't matter. Like, it's like, these are things that happen. These are real things that happen. And to try yeah. to envelop them in this stupid category and then toss them to the curb as unimportant or somehow less important than things that happen in a more, you know, materialistically verifiable way is just seems silly. Like, these are important dimensions of our lives. Well, this is why I liked your definition of reality as what matters. Right. Why I like that so much in our games episode. Yeah. <laughs> this, is, this makes me think of the Ursula Le Guin short story collection called The Real and the Unreal. And in the introduction, she explains that the, it's divided into two parts. And the first part is like more or less stories that happen in the recognizable world. And the second half is like sci-fi and fantasy stories. And then at the end of the introduction, she says, I'll leave it up to you to decide which section is the real and which is the unreal. Nice. That's brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Stanley Kubrick once said, reality isn't something you'll only find in your backyard. You know, sometimes that's the last place you'll find it. I always like that little quote summing up the porous boundary between the real and the e-real or the unreal. Well, clearly this whole story is about the porosity of this boundary between the consensus real or the materially real and the inner real. There are a lot of interesting details, like, for example, the high gabled house that he keeps visualizing in his so-called hypnagogic images actually ends up being the same as the house that they're actually staying in. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which is his mother's house and his mother is off on a cruise. Yes. Also, the blue cliffs that he sees in the dream happen to pop up on a postcard he gets from his mom, who's in, uh, I can't remember the name of the, a Greek island where the oh, Calypso story. That's right. Yeah, in the mm-hmm. Mediterranean. And also... When he sees the face of the woman in his dream, so to speak, in his vision, he immediately screams out Judith. And he's obviously calling for her help, but at the same time, he may be naming this. So there's all these parallels between the Mm. two worlds that just make the pores even wider. (laughs) Well, and I can tell you, I've talked about this on the show before, how one of the things that is very surprising about the imaginal is realizing that it has autonomous claims. Yeah, And it has claims on us that the way we think of imagination, as Coleridge said, is what we call imagination mostly is fancy, just something that I can make up all by myself. Yeah, And a lot of somewhat degraded ideas of the imagination are sort of like that. There's a great Kids in the Hall sketch. I'm a huge Kids in the Hall fan where Kevin McDonald plays somebody we recognize from our daily life, the sort of internet age huckster who's all about like selling his vision. And he sets up a shop selling creativity. He's going to sell creative ideas. And so his office is in a submarine. And uh, 
somebody comes to him and he thinks it's a client and he's like, we yeah. unleash the imagination office submarine like and he keeps <laughs> yeah, coming right. back to this every time he's sort of in a jam he just says office submarine like take two things and squish them together just recombining them in weird ways like that qualifies as imagination right yeah right. at one point he's like my underwear is the body of a guitar and you realize he's got this guitar <laughs> like under his shirt <laughs> which actually seems to me to be like a marvelous parody of business management type books which are basically just like find someone else else's idea and stick something else onto it boom creativity right that is creativity within the closed circle getting back to our wheel of fortune yes serpent and the dove yeah where nothing ever new can enter the system you can only endlessly reshuffle given existing elements and then you call that creativity that's specifically how coleridge talks about fancy in terms of just recombining that's what i'm I'm saying yeah yeah Yeah. that fancy is not the imaginal the imaginal like the fancy who, who even gives a shit office submarine yeah the imaginal the true capital I imagination is a world where golden centaurs exist and big rock candy mountain exists. I don't know yeah. if you know mm-hmm. that song, uh, an old hobo song. Um, well, strangely, it's like, uh, is it Ibn Arabi, the, the great Islamic scholar of the Mundus Imaginalis, where Corbain got this idea of the imaginal? I can't remember who it is. I think it's Arabi. But anyways, one of the key notions of the whole idea of the imaginal among the Sufi thinkers was this specifically this great mountain, you know, Mount, I can't remember the name of it, but there's one mountain that exists in the imaginal. So it's funny that you bring up Big Rock Candy Mountain. Well, and also I think in magical experience, you come to realize there are things that are imaginal, but they exist. They have persistent existence. So like, for instance, encountering a woman robed in green, right? And the way Maitland kind of thinks about her, at first she's kind of scary, and then she becomes just a kind of regular part of the scenery that he has to factor into his way of thinking about how he moves through this world. But the assumption is she's there, she exists. So this is one of the things we expect of reality, right? Object permanence. That if I get up and go and make a sandwich and I come back, this computer is still going to be here. But like that it can exist on the imaginal plane too. This reminds me of, for instance, the reports of people who trip on DMT, which that's not an experience I've had, but like people who trip on DMT and talk about meeting machine elves. Yeah. Like there are certain types of creature, imaginal creatures of people who are tripping on DMT encounter. And the weird invariance of these creatures, how they are met by people who don't know anything about them, have never read trip reports on Arrowhead or whatever, suggests that there is some object permanence, some continuing reality. It's just that that continuing reality isn't material and it isn't here. And magicians are constantly stumbling into that world. And in my case, discovering rather by accident, imagination isn't just office submarine. It's... You engaging with a world infinitely larger than yourself, but that is available both through inner life, inner experience, and also through stories. If you enjoyed this podcast, Consider subscribing to Weird Studies on your favorite podcasting platform. 
You can also follow us on Twitter, visit the Weird Studies subreddit, and, of course, support us on Patreon. Music for the podcast is composed and performed by Pierre-Yves Martel, and the show is made with the assistance of Meredith Michael. Thank you for listening.